0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We'll be addressing this morning the biggest scandal in church history. A scandal so big that we have forgotten that it is a scandal. Talking, of course, about the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. So listen now to the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter... James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers.
1: And in those days
0: Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spake before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man had purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you provided a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Lord, we pray that you would help us to gather for prayer and preaching as the early church did, that you would help us to walk by the Spirit who has now come. Thank you for the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which through your will was completed in time for the Spirit to come. Father, help us today to hear your word and to learn from it and to be ready for insignificance, for scandal, for apostasy. Lord, we need your help for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. When Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he built an altar and he carefully selected 12 stones to make up that altar. Why did Elijah make sure that it was a 12-stone altar? Well, he was making a theological and political statement. Ahab, your rule is illegitimate. Israel consists of 12 tribes. That's where God's presence is with the 12 tribes. And by claiming to rule just 10, you're already telling us you're not God's anointed. Similarly, in this chapter, Peter stands up and says, we must have 12. The Spirit of God will descend on the church when the church is ready, and the church is not ready if we're missing an apostle. You can't found the church on a foundation of a rotten apostate apostle like Judas Iscariot." Remember, Luke is trying to tell us about the certainty of the kingdom to reassure us that these things really are certain. And so the first incident he shows us after the ascension is this matter of choosing a replacement for Judas. The kingdom was done by the book, above board, in the proper way, according to the official channels, This was not a fly-by-night or half-baked operation. If I can shove as many cliches as possible into one sentence. That is the message that Luke is presenting us as he tells the story of the selection of Matthias. The selection of Matthias is not important so that we can follow the career of Matthias with interest through the rest of the book. He vanishes after this chapter, as do most of the other apostles. No, Peter doesn't tell us about Matthias because he personally is important, but because he's numerically important. There must be a dozen apostles for this thing to be legitimate, for this to be the new Israel with 12 tribes. That's what Peter preaches. That's what they do. And that's what Luke records to tell us. Yes, the kingdom is certain. The church is Legitimate. The church is just what God wants it to be. What Luke has to show us is that we are the new Israel, and therefore we need to gather for prayer and for preaching, and we need 12 apostles to be our foundation. We'll look at what the church did, and then we'll apply that in terms of what the church should do today. What the church did, well, after the ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. Not everything in the book of Acts has a spiritual application. The early church fathers found it, found a spiritual application in this verse by saying, whoever doesn't complete the Sabbath day's journey of worshiping Christ on a weekly basis will not ascend to heaven with him. That's why Luke mentions the Sabbath day's journey here. Not sure that that's correct. Maybe Luke is just trying to say the Mount of Olives is not very far from Jerusalem. But in any case, they return and they gather. They go into the upper room where they were staying and he lists the twelve apostles or the eleven, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealous and Judas the son of James. James. All the lists of the 12 apostles are broken into three groups of 4, uh, as is this one. They all start with Peter, and the second set of four always starts with Philip. Kind of interesting, this pattern seen throughout the New Testament. But anyway, why does Luke record them? Well, to remind us somebody's missing. It's been a bit of a scandal. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they gather, and it's not just the apostles, it's the whole church. The women, Mary the mother of Jesus, his brothers, in fact, about 120 people. And Luke describes them in a really strange way. A way so strange that every English translation has excised it from the text. The Greek says the crowd of names was 120 King James, New King James replaced that with the number of names, and most newer translations just have something like the number of persons. Luke doesn't say the number of persons, he says the crowd of names. Now, you've probably never heard that phrase or used that phrase before, nor does it appear elsewhere in Scripture. What does Luke mean by saying the crowd of names? It seems to me that he's saying it's a crowd. It's a big group, right? That's what a crowd is. But it's not an anonymous crowd. This is a crowd where everybody is a somebody. Everybody in this church, and it's a big church 120 people, it's a crowd. They all have a name, they're all known, they all fit in and belong. In this body, there are no anonymous Christians. No, they all have names. And already Luke is telling us something about the church. It's fine for the church to be a crowd. Don't say, oh, that's a big church. I don't want to go there. But the church, while being a crowd, also has to be known. We need to know each other's names. That's kind of the, the very lowest bar of church membership. Learn who else is in your church. If you see somebody and say, I recognize the face, I'm not real sure on the name. Go to them and say, Hi, I'm Caleb, and ask what their name is. It's a crowd of names. They knew each other. And as they gathered in a non-anonymous fashion, as they gathered in a known, named fashion. What did they do? Well, the first thing they did was pray. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They all agreed to pray together. Luke emphasizes the unity of the church many times throughout the text of Acts. This is the first time he mentions it that they agreed, and specifically they agreed on what to pray for. And you'll find that even today, this is the easiest place in the whole church to find unity. Everyone can agree on praying for the kingdom to come, for God's will to be done, for justice to triumph, for Christ to return, for evil to be driven back. They agreed on what to pray for. Everyone was included in praying. No one was exempted. That's how the church got ready for the Father's promise. By asking Him to keep it. Little children, you're good at this. Dad, you told us we could have... And then... You remember when you're told that you can have something. And you're not shy about reminding us dads. What about us dads? What about us grown-ups in this church? Do we remember God's promises to us? Are we shy about reminding Him? Lord, You promised. They called on Him with one accord in prayer and supplication. So they're praying, and then Peter gets up to preach. And he addresses the issue. We're missing somebody here. Today, And we're so used to the scandal of Judas Iscariot that it doesn't faze us a bit. This is an example of how to handle scandal. There is no attempted cover-up. His name is not dropped from the pages of the New Testament. Would we even know about Judas, except that the four Gospels and Acts... Give him a big role. Mention him, oftentimes, from the beginning as the one who would betray Jesus. By the time we get to the end of the Gospels, we're so primed for Judas to be the bad guy that it doesn't even register with us. He went out and it was night. Well, of course he did. He was filled with Satan. That's what satanic people do. But the Gospels equally show us that that is not how the other 11 thought about Judas Iscariot. He was trusted. He was the treasurer of Jesus Christ Ministries International, Inc. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't go, oh yeah, Judas. Yep. Saw that one coming. No. They all said... As I look around, the one in this room that I think is most likely to betray Jesus is me. But there was no collective sense that Judas was kind of the black sheep of the disciple family. Not at all. But Peter confronts the issue head on and says, Judas... Became a guide to those who betrayed Jesus? Or those who arrested Jesus? Here's the deal. This is biblical. We should have known this was going to happen if we read our Bibles. Because it's right there in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now, this... In the modern era, it's not a scandal that Judas betrayed Jesus. Right? Our culture loves that. The figure of the oppressed, noble peasant, ground down by imperial overlords. There is no cultural hero with more catch-it than that. But what our culture does not love is what Peter proceeds to do here quote, two psalms from a thousand years previously and say, the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And to say that David knew and was writing about Judas is roughly equivalent to saying that William the Conqueror came over to England in 1066, knew and was writing poems about Adolf Hitler. We look forward a thousand years into the future and prognosticated this. Right, so, the scandal to our culture is this statement that the Old Testament is about Jesus. And our gut reaction is no, it's not. David did not know the name Judas Iscariot. David did not know what Judas Iscariot was going to do. And furthermore, David did not write a poem about it. Now, we all read Psalm 69 a few moments ago. And I'm sure your first thought, as you heard its opening words, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. You all said, Judas. This psalm is about Judas. No, none of you said that. Why not? Or better, why does Peter say it is about Judas? Well, the answer, of course, is that though Peter didn't say that David knew about Judas, he said the Spirit knew about Judas. The Holy Spirit knew a thousand years in advance, and he spoke by the mouth of David about Judas. That is, the Spirit spoke better than he knew. The major line of attack taken against the Scripture in the modern era by the devil has been along the historicizing lines that say, David didn't know the name of Judas Iscariot. David didn't know the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Nor did Moses, nor did Ezra, nor did Isaiah, nor did any of these other things. In fact, the Old Testament is some sacred writings compiled by Hebrew priests around 5600 B.C. And the entire New Testament is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of these documents, and hijacking them for the purpose of building up this messianic teacher figure. That's what we've been told. That's what's repeated in the halls of academia. That is the line taken by most, the vast majority of books on the Bible, uh, by things from mainstream outlets. Right? If you read a story on the Bible in any kind of national publication time or the New York Times, they're going to take that line. If you listen to a teaching company course on the New Testament, that's what they'll tell you. Because they're allergic to the Holy Spirit. The Bible is thoroughly natural. It was indeed written by ordinary human beings with pen and ink but it's also thoroughly supernatural. It's the words of the Holy Spirit as well as the words of David, Isaiah, Moses, and the rest. Peter addresses the scandal of Judas. We, in our day, turn to the unbelieving world and address the scandal of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And we say, no, if you read the Old Testament correctly, it really is about Jesus. Psalm 69 really is about Judas. In what sense? Well, in the sense that Psalm 69 describes the attacks made by the enemies of God on the Lord's anointed. David speaks as the Lord's anointed and he says, The waters have come up to my neck, I'm in deep trouble. These people are out to get me. Lord, curse them. And those attacks on the Lord's anointed culminated in Judas' betrayal. That's how David was speaking about Judas. David didn't know the name of Judas. The Spirit did. And he spoke about it. So Peter quotes from Psalm 69, quotes from Psalm 109. He applies these scriptures to the congregation in front of him. Let his habitation be desolate. Let no one live in it. Let another take his office. Judas had an office. He was treasurer. He was apostle. We need somebody else to take this place left vacant by Iscariot this is what preaching is to take the book and apply it to the people in front of you that's what Peter did in this chapter that's what he'll do in the next chapter that's what the apostles do throughout the book of Acts a preacher who doesn't do that needs to go do something else because he's not preaching Peter preaches now Verses 18 and 19 are probably, your translation might have them in parentheses. They look like an authorial comment. Peter didn't need to describe the entire thing. It had happened in Jerusalem just six weeks previously. Probably almost all these people who believed in Jesus at this time had also believed in him before the crucifixion, or certainly not long after the resurrection. But regardless of whether Luke added verses 18 and 19 or whether Peter spoke them, they tell us the further history of Judas. Put together with Matthew, we know that Judas returned the money. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. The high priest, with their typical pastoral care, said, what's that to us? That's your problem. In which case, Judas went out and hanged himself. The high priest went and bought a field. Presumably the field where he hanged himself. And Judas hung up there in the sun until his body burst open and all his guts spilled out. And the whole city of Jerusalem heard about this. In fact, they just renamed the field the field of blood. Akeldama. This phrase has an afterlife, too. John Quincy Adams used this in the 1820s to describe Europe's endless wars. The United States will not get involved in Europe, that akaldama, he called it. But originally, the field referred to the death of Judas. Peter says, Judas is gone. We need to replace Him. Why did they need to replace Him? They needed to replace Him in order to complete the twelve apostles. Indeed, Peter starts with this impersonal construction. It was necessary. Men and brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Why did it have to be fulfilled? Why was this necessary? Peter uses what we call an impersonal construction where the agent is not specified. We use this all the time in the phrase, it's raining. Have you ever talked to somebody and said, What's raining? Usually sets them back a little bit. You can't say the weather's raining. You can't say the sky's raining. You just say, It's raining. Well, Peter says, It's necessary for the scripture to be fulfilled. In this case, he's using what we would call the divine passive, divine impersonal construction. God made it necessary. God necessitated that this Scripture come to completion. God said it would happen. Therefore, it happened. So let's complete the 12 apostles. Peter is reflecting on Israel's history. There's no verse in the Bible that says there must be 12 apostles. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses to me as long as you add a 12th apostle. That was not the final words of Jesus. How did Peter come up with this? He came up with it by reflecting on the overall symbolic shape of Scripture. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 of us. I think he's trying to make A statement. This symbolic imagination is crucial for a preacher to be able to read the overall picture and tell you, in terms of the overall picture, what you need to do now. Peter isn't preaching from any particular text that says there must be a 12th apostle, he's preaching from the overall shape of Israel's history. The church is the new Israel. Therefore, the church needs to be founded on 12, just like Israel was founded on 12. And by the way, of course, how many apostles were there actually? There are actually 14 apostles, just as there were actually 14 tribes of Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. The oldest of those, Reuben, gets booted out of the list of tribes because he violated his father's concubine. And then Joseph also gets booted, replaced by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So one of those, of course, replaces Joseph. The other one replaces Reuben. But in Revelation, the tribes of Reuben and Joseph come back. Ephraim and Manasseh are not mentioned in the book of Revelation when John lists the 12 tribes. Why? Because there are actually... 14 tribes. The 12 sons of Jacob plus Ephraim and Manasseh. That's 14. And in the New Testament, the exact same pattern recurs. There are 12 original disciples. Judas gets booted. Matthias gets added. That's 13. And then Paul gets added. That's 14. Is there significance to that? I think it's significant because it's highlighting, once again, the symbolic nature of these numbers. Yes, 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, 12 apostles in the church. But if you count everyone who legitimately bore that title, there's actually 14 of each. But the headline figure is 12 because... That's the symbolic number of completeness. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles of the church. God is not so much interested in the details on these numbers as He is in the overall picture, the symbolic resonance of the twelve tribes morphing into the twelve apostles. Now, the ability to see that, yes, that's why Peter was an apostle. Be skeptical of anyone who tells you, I see symbolic patterns in Scripture that no one else has ever seen. But at the same time, this ability to see the ones that are actually there is key for guiding the church, which is exactly what Peter does here. We need a twelfth apostle. Then Peter puts forward the criteria for who that apostle should be. He has to be someone who accompanied them the whole time that Jesus lived on earth and all the way through the ascension. Someone who is not already an apostle, but who has been present with the twelve in Jesus through Jesus' entire earthly ministry. Well, there were only two candidates. There were only two men who fit that bill. Those are the two that they put forward. Joseph and Matthias, and then they draw lots in order to make it clear that God chose the apostle. It was not human agency. So they cast their lots, the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles, at which point he drops out of the narrative. What does the church learn from this? Well, like them, we need to gather. They gather together as a crowd of names. We gather together as a crowd of names. And when we gather, we need to pray. Unified prayer is the hallmark of the church. The first thing we see the church doing in this era between the ascension and the second coming. That's why the elders of this church have established two prayer meetings. Right? You should pray together with your family. Absolutely. Christians pray together. But you should also pray together with your church family. A better way to put it is that if you never engage in united prayer, if you only ever pray alone, don't expect to receive the power and witness that the early church had. If you don't do the spiritual practices they did, don't expect the spiritual results they had. God's people have historically gathered to pray together. All but one command for prayer in the New Testament is corporate. Jesus does say, go in your closet alone. All the rest of the prayer commands are plural. Pray, y'all. Y'all pray. Together as a group. If you only talk to your father at family gatherings, you're not as close to him as you should be. If you don't talk to him even there, there's something wrong with you. Christians don't just pray alone. Find a prayer partner. Come to prayer meetings. Pray with your family. Do all of the above, but at least do one of the above. Secondly, Christians gather for preaching. Peter stood up, he spoke to them, he explained how the Bible was relevant to where they were at this time in their situation. That is essential for the church. That's imperative. There's nothing wrong with a pre-written liturgy You go over roughly the same points every week, but you need preaching as well. The living voice of Christ says, here's where we're at. Here's how the Bible relates to this place. That's what Peter did. If you you expect God to hear you when you pray, you'd better listen to Him when He talks. You won't listen to God. Why would you expect him to listen to you? And then they were gathering and choosing a twelfth apostle to get ready for the descent of the Spirit, which we'll talk about next time. We already have the Spirit. So we gather not to get ready for the Spirit to come, but to live out the experience of having the Spirit. We need to walk by the Spirit. And that means growing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then finally, we should build on the apostolic foundation. Again, they were establishing the foundation in this text. We're building on it. Not our job to establish the foundation again. I haven't gathered you all here to say, let's elect a twelfth apostle. Anyway, there's nobody here who fits the criteria of having been with Jesus all through his earthly ministry. So, the moment in history where God has placed us is not about selecting another apostle, it's about listening to the apostles we already have. And what do we learn from those apostles? Well, the first thing is get ready to deal with apostasy. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem during those weeks When this thing was not done in a corner, the whole city knows what happened with Jesus of Nazareth and how he set up to be this incredibly brilliant teacher from God who somehow chose a lemon. In fact, somehow chose a demon-possessed individual to be the most trusted of his apostles, the one who carried the money, the one who handled the finances. That's a little awkward. Right? If that's not a good reason to leave the faith, I don't know what is. I serve Jesus of Nazareth. You know, He's, he's God. He knows everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one who is turned into the Romans by his own crony. That one? Yeah, 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 that one. Apostasy is still a scandal. I talked to a man from Florida one time he said he was at a large Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale about 15,000 members in this Calvary Chapel and I mentioned oh Fort Lauderdale well that's the home of a man in our denomination Tolian Chavidgin and Tolian just had an affair and left the ministry I said and this fellow said well that's funny the same thing just happened to our pastor and you know what? All of Miami knows, he tells me. This is the uphill battle that the church is fighting in dealing with apostasy. There is no apostasy worse than the apostasy of Judas Iscariot. But if you're in contemporary Miami and you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, and they say, oh yeah, 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 those two preachers a few years ago. That lots of people put their trust in and gave lots of money to. They believed this, that you're trying to sell me on, didn't they? Get ready for apostasy. Don't let it surprise you. Don't let it drive you away from the faith. And expect, therefore, to be ridiculous. I serve God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the omniscient one who handpicked his betrayer. You know, I told you before how I've enjoyed mocking the poor woman in Fort Collins who ran this little shop called Psychic Readings by Kay on the corner of Harmony and, oh, I forget the other street down there on the way to Sam's Club. Anyway... She was murdered one day by her ex-husband. What's the punchline? Didn't see that one coming. Well, Jesus, we're preaching that he knows everything. And what do the people of Jerusalem, the good people of Jerusalem say? Oh, I didn't see that one coming. That's who we serve. We serve a Messiah who chose Judas Iscariot, the mother of all scandals. There's no way to distance yourself from Judas after the fact. Oh, Jesus didn't choose him. He just volunteered. He just kind of wormed his way. No. Jesus found him and picked him, just like the other ones, and said, follow me. Jesus died in a ridiculous way. Don't expect to be a dignified Christian. If you're a dignified Christian, you're not following the Master. He was not dignified. He came to his own city and did something so, such an obvious blunder that the whole city could only laugh. And finally, don't expect to be prominent. Oh, Matthias, man, they're going to pick a new apostle. This is going to be really interesting. And in vain will you peruse the next 27 chapters of Acts trying to figure out what Matthias did. Put another way, there were 12 apostles, but only Peter, John, and James appear after Acts chapter 1. There were 12 apostles, but only a quarter of them did anything. And so it is with the church down to this day. No, we shouldn't say that. But that is the impression that Luke sends. Just because you're an apostle doesn't mean you're going to be prominent. Don't expect that the whole kingdom, the whole church is going to say, oh, Caleb Nelson, what a tremendous radio preacher. I listen to him all the time. Don't expect to be prominent. Or if you are, expect to be prominent as a laughing stock. One of the best known idiots of 21st century America. This is a good chapter in that they got ready for the Spirit. But it's a tough chapter when we recognize what it says about the church. Jesus didn't see Judas coming. The New Testament insists that we reframe that and say, no, he knew it was happening. He came to die. But in the mind of the unbeliever, that's worse than the other. Either he missed the obvious, or what's worse, he had the wrong criteria of success. Why would I join a failure? The answer is, we're not joining a failure. This is about the success of the kingdom. This is about the triumph of the kingdom. But the kingdom triumphs in a way that we don't expect. Not by political power, as we talked about last week. Not by really smart moves that make the entire city go, Wow, that is a brilliant group of people following a brilliant leader. Not how the kingdom comes. No, we gather, we pray, we preach. We walk by the Spirit, and we build on the foundation of the apostles. And the world looks on and says, That is so stupid, I can't even tell you how dumb that is. But we're not doing it to impress the world doing it because we love jesus let's pray father we don't want to be ridiculous we hate being laughing stocks we desperately want to see embarrassing scandals and incidents coming and start damage control immediately father we thank you for the openness of your word that tells the truth that reveals the scandal makes no effort to hide it, and in fact embraces it and says, your son loved us enough that he came to die. And he deliberately chose someone who would betray him to the death he came for. Lord, forgive us for our addiction to the limelight, for our love of looking good, We pray against apostasy within our own congregation, our own denomination, our own country. Against apostasy throughout your church around the world. Father, it must needs be that offenses will come. There must be heretics among us. Don't let us stumble on those stumbling stones. Don't let us be disturbed by those scandals. And help us instead to recognize that Your Spirit knew all about it. Millennia ago, He predicted it. He wrote about it in Psalms. Thank You, Father, that the New Testament really is the fulfillment of the Old. Help us to trust Your Son today as the one that David wrote about. And as the one who will set the world right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.